Welcome to Food Psych, a weekly podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, and body liberation. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor. Join me as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 115 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I have an amazing repeat guest that I'm so excited to have back on the show. Melissa Fabello is my guest on the podcast today. Some of you may know her from episode 43 way back in 2015, where she was my guest for the first time. And also you may know her from life, from the internet, because she is everywhere. She's amazing. She worked as the managing editor of Everyday Feminism until very recently. She's also a body acceptance and eating disorder activist, as well as a scholar in the field of sexology. She lives in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and she is a doctoral candidate in Widener University's Human Sexuality Studies program, where her research focuses on how women with anorexia experience skin hunger. So I talked with her about her research on sexuality and what skin hunger really means. We also talked about beauty. She writes really wonderfully about beauty on her website and in her newsletter. And we talked about media literacy and the problems with Netflix's movie To the Bone. And I actually got a question from a listener in the the weekly questions who asked if I could discuss To the Bone on the podcast. So fear not, we are talking about it this week. I got into it with Melissa, who had a great dissection of what everything that's wrong with with the movie. And basically, short answer is we don't recommend seeing it. Um, But she watched it for you so that you don't have to. And she has some really amazing thoughts about it that she'll share in the episode. So I can't wait to share that all with you in just a moment. Before we do, I'm going to answer this week's listener question. It's from a listener named Lucy who writes, Intuitive eating is about following our body's natural cues. But what about people who have mental disorders that affect the way their brain functions and potentially other body cues? For example, I have OCD and often have thoughts that I know aren't logical or intuitive. Could such issues affect the way our brain handles satiety and hunger? I believe my OCD has been the biggest factor in my eating disorder, even more so than diet culture. So thanks so much, Lucy, for that question. And before I answer, I'm just going to give my standard disclaimer that these questions or these answers, rather, are not substitutes for medical advice. I'm not your individual doctor or your mental health therapist or dietitian. So talk with your treatment team if you have specific questions about your health. But these are for informational and educational purposes only. So from that perspective, I do have some experience working with people who have mental health conditions around intuitive eating. And yes, that can definitely affect things, right? So as you experienced the OCD and the intrusive thoughts that are coming into your mind from that disorder can play a huge role in your eating habits, right? That that sort of override your body's natural intuition about food. So I would say with that, with your own experience, I wonder if you've been able to identify maybe with therapy or just in your own self-reflection, what the OCD voice sounds like and how you can distinguish that from your own inner voice. 
Because with many mental health conditions, there will be sort of a separate voice. I mean, we talk about this a lot with eating disorder recovery, right? There's an eating disorder voice that's really separate from kind of who you really are and the sort of non-judgmental inner caretaker voice that might be there too or might be really silenced by the eating disorder. The eating disorder usually is a very critical voice, sort of a nagging voice, domineering voice. Many people will identify that it sounds similar to someone in their past, right? Like the voice of a critical parent or critical someone else in, in your life or in the world. So with OCD, it's kind of similar, right? The OCD voice might have the flavor of criticism or strictness, right? Not flexibility, not, not logic. And I'm sure that, you know, in your work that you've done on OCD, you sort of understand that there is true logic and then OCD logic, right? Like true logic says you can't predict the future and the way you wash your hands or go about some sort of routine in your home isn't going to determine the outcome of your day, right? You sort of can logically know that. But then the OCD part of you really believes in that logic, really believes that you can control the future based on rituals you do or whatever other behaviors are sort of part of your compulsions, right? So I think sort of separating those two sides can be a valuable exercise because just as with the diet mentality or the eating disorder versus the inner self or the inner caretaker or the healthy self, whatever you want to call it, you know, those two sides, right, the, the disordered part and the more nonjudgmental, compassionate part, being able to see the difference and say, like, I'm going to choose not to listen to the disordered part today, right? Or, oh, I gave in to the disordered part there, but I'm not under any illusions that that was coming from the compassionate part, right? Like you can sort of see maybe after the fact with a little distance and reflection, oh, that's where I gave in to the eating disorder and I was following its logic. I wasn't actually doing the compassionate thing that I know to be true or that part of me really wants, right? And so the more you practice with that, the more you practice disconnecting from that disordered side or challenging it or just stepping away from it and noticing it, the easier it gets to sidestep it, right? The easier it gets to not do the thing that it's telling you to do. And I'm not intimately familiar with OCD. You know, I'm not a therapist. I'm a dietitian and coach. So I, you know, I'm not trained in all the mental health intricacies of OCD or other mental health conditions. But I can say that from the people I've worked with who've had some success recovering from OCD, it seems to be a similar type of thing, right? I mean, medication is also a huge part of managing OCD. So finding the right psychiatrist and psychotherapist is super important too. But cognitively, behaviorally, some of the things that work are sort of separating out what is my true logical mind saying and what is the OCD logic saying. So you might explore that and apply it to your relationship with food, right? And say like, where does this thought seem to be coming from? You know, if I have XYZ thought about behaviors I should be doing with food, quote unquote, what part of my mind is that coming from? Is that coming from the compassionate, non-judgmental part of me? Or is that coming from the OCD logic, right? And then the other piece is if you have a mental health condition that is affecting your appetite, say you have to take medication for it that's increasing your appetite as many psychotropic medications do, or decreasing your appetite as many of them do as well, or depression has got you either really low appetite or eating a lot for comfort, Right, or anxiety or many other conditions can have an effect on your appetite, certainly because we have this brain-gut connection, right? There's 
a really strong link between our emotions and how we feel and how how that lives in our gut, right? Both sort of metaphorically, like a gut feeling, and also literally, like your digestion and appetite can be affected by mental health conditions. So if that's the case, I would say really work with an experienced treatment team. Don't try to do this alone. And I know there's a huge amount of privilege in that, like in being able to afford treatment, but do whatever you can to be able to get support. Maybe that is community support, or maybe that's going on your insurance plan and finding someone who's good enough, right, or whatever. But if you can, try to get treatment that addresses both the mental health issues as well as your relationship with food. And so from your question, Lucy, like it sounds like you have a full-blown eating disorder. It sounds like it's probably diagnosed, which is great because then you can get treatment that addresses both the eating disorder and the OCD together. And at first, I think in early recovery from eating disorders and from mental health conditions, it gets really jumbled and it's hard to tell what your appetite cues are, what your body is telling you. And especially with eating disorders that independent of other mental health conditions, although of course, most people with eating disorders also have some other mental health stuff going on, even if it's just anxiety related to food, right? So for everyone who has an eating disorder, and even to a certain extent, chronic dieting and disordered eating that's not diagnosed or clinically, quote unquote, significant enough to get a diagnosis, you can still be very far afield from your hunger and fullness cues because the disordered eating really messes with them. So what Evelyn Triboli, the co-author of Intuitive Eating, likes to say is that if you are in an eating disorder, an active eating disorder, or really, really significantly disordered eating, you need to start first with what she calls nutritional rehabilitation. And that is sort of like putting a cast on a broken limb before you can then get the cast off, start to regain mobility, start to do physical therapy, finally get a full range of motion back at some point down the line, right? If you're in a super disordered state, you're not able to jump to intuitive eating, just like if you had a broken arm, you wouldn't be able to jump to pitching a baseball, right? You you have to go through the healing process. And so nutritional rehabilitation is the process of just sort of mechanically eating enough food throughout the day, you know, spaced apart enough so that you're reteaching your body how to have normal cues about food, right? And this is usually done, I mean, this is best done with an experienced eating disorder registered dietitian who understands, you know, ideally someone who gets intuitive eating and health at every size as well, because that all together really facilitates the best recovery, right? I'm sure I don't have to tell you if you're a regular listener, like how important those things are in facilitating full recovery. So finding someone like that, that you can work with to develop a meal plan that's going to just be like your cast on your broken arm to get you through the initial part where you maybe don't really have hunger and fullness cues to speak of, or they're not really leading you down a path that you think is healing for your eating disorder, right? So you can you can rely on the meal plan to just give you guidance in that early stage and help you redevelop those cues. Because when you do eat mechanically when you need to, as, as often as your body needs to, you start to relearn what subtle levels of hunger and fullness feel like, right? You're not going long stretches without eating and sort of only eating when ravenous, or you're not binging and then restricting, right? Because the binge restrict cycle 
shows you like, oh, you know, you get really, really overly full and then you don't eat for a really long time and then you get really, really overly hungry and that's all there is, right? So that's one of the ways that disordered eating really gets your cues out of whack. And so again, the best way to get back into whack, I guess, is to do some sort of structured meal plan that reteaches your body the normal sort of levels of hunger and fullness, right? The moderate levels rather than the extremes. So I hope that helps answer your question, but kind of, yeah, short summary is that your natural cues might be out of whack for a variety of reasons, primarily disordered eating, but also maybe some mental health conditions that are affecting how you think about food. And so intuitive eating might not be available to you right now, but that doesn't mean that it's not available down the line with a further stage of recovery. It's just about finding the ways to nutritionally rehabilitate yourself, finding ways to give yourself that cast on your broken arm, so to speak, to get back to a sort of more regular hunger and fullness routine. And then ultimately, you really will be able to become an intuitive eater again. So that's why this is such a long process for so many people. It doesn't happen overnight. And I really caution against anyone jumping straight from an eating disorder to intuitive eating because it's going to be super problematic, just like you described. So yeah, thanks so much for your question. And for those of you who want to ask your own question, you can go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions, plural. Before we get into today's interview, I want to share a few resources that I love. The first is my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. And this is my quick start guide to intuitive eating and health at every size. So if you're looking for some really practical tips to launch your anti-diet journey, this is the place to go. You can head over to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it, or you can text the word seven strategies to the phone number 44222. That's the number seven in the word strategies all together to phone number 44222, or go to christyharrison.com slash strategies. The second resource I want to share is my intuitive eating online course. It's a 13-week program that I created to help you work through all the principles of intuitive eating in depth and really troubleshoot some of the common areas where people get stuck when they're trying to do intuitive eating on their own. So I'll show you how to recognize the diet mentality even in its subtle forms and how to start changing your thinking to substitute more compassionate thoughts instead. I'll share my secrets to making food and movement choices from a place of self-care rather than self-control. I'll teach you how to navigate emotional eating and how to stop alternating between restricting and overeating and lots more. So check out what a few participants have had to say about the course. I've been on an unofficial diet for over 14 years, and my goal was always to make peace with food in my body before I turned 30 because I don't want to have my children going through the same as me. With this course, I finally feel this is possible. It gives me hope. It challenges my thoughts. It provides me help when I need it. And there are a lot of journal exercises that I truly enjoy. I'm thankful for being exposed to another anti-diet world, and I definitely see meal plans and weight loss apps through different eyes today. I can't say how grateful I am that I found this course, Christy, and all the members who support me daily through our Facebook group. That was from a participant named Julie, and a participant named Christina wrote at the end of the course, I've put off completing this last module because I was so sad that the course is coming to an end for me. The gratitude that I feel for Christy, her team, and the Facebook group cannot even be put into words right now. 
I'm at a place that I never imagined was actually possible for me. It took me about five months to complete the course, and I'm just in disbelief of my mindset around food, exercise, and my body. It is amazing, liberating, humbling, and exhilarating. This course saved me. It gave me such a deep understanding of intuitive eating as well as of myself. It's crazy to think that I gave up dieting. I have confidence to move forward implementing the principles and continuing to heal. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So if you'd like to join these folks in the course and in the Facebook group where we get lots and lots of support for our participants every week, you can head over to christyharrison.com slash course to learn more and sign up. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Melissa Fabello. Welcome back to the show, Melissa. It's been uh, like about two years since we talked last. You were in episode 43. And so much has happened in both of our lives and careers since then. So I just want to <laughs> catch up a little bit and hear how you've been doing and, you know, what you've been up to in your work. That's a great question. What has been happening in the past, like, two years? I feel like that's been time. I will say, though, that, like, a lot of folks have found my work through that podcast, which is, like, amazing. Like, oh. I still to this day will have people like, oh, I heard you're on Food Psych. And I'm like, oh, cool. <laughs> that's so exciting. Yeah, it is. So... Actually, today was my last day at my full-time job, which was working as the managing editor of Everyday Feminism. Yeah, wow. it's, yeah, which I, and I've worked there for like five years, so it's pretty wild. Yeah, so that's the biggest change, I would say. I've also been doing, right, if we talked two years ago, I was probably still a doctoral student then, unfortunately, because it takes so long. <laughs> but I, I'm, I've moved on to the doctoral candidate stage, which is like a fancy way to say I'm writing a dissertation, which, you know, we'll talk about. But I've been doing that. And otherwise, I mean, not much. It's been like learning a lot, you know, which is like always true. That's awesome. Yeah. Life's, yeah, life's just, it comes at you fast. <laughs> so, <laughs> it really does. Yeah. Two years feels like a blink of an eye, but like also so much happens. About the same happens. time a decade. Yeah, right. Exactly. Totally. Yeah. So I'm curious to hear more about your dissertation because it's uh, it covers a topic that really we don't talk about enough on the podcast or in society in general, which is sexuality, right? And sort of the intersections of disordered eating and sexuality and food and sexuality. So I'm just very curious to hear all of your thoughts, these topics. All of them. All yeah, of them. here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I think, right, it, you're right. It is definitely a topic that we don't talk about enough. I'm doing a doctoral program in human sexuality studies it's the only fully accredited doctoral program in human sexuality studies in the world, which like tells you everything you need to know about how deeply people care about sex as a concept and their own sexuality and their own experiences with sexuality. But like as a field of study and as a topic of conversation, people really, really struggle with it. Like even doing that program, people will ask me about, oh, what are you getting PhD in? And I say human sexuality studies. It's like I always get the same responses, which is like, you know, what is there to know? And I'm like, uh, yeah, like, first of all, you're probably having terrible sex if you don't think there's anything to know about sexuality in general. But it's also just, yeah, people really don't, or they just think I'm weird. Like, they just think that's <laughs> like a really strange thing. So, and when you look at the intersection of sexuality and eating disorders, it's like even fewer people are talking about it, which is, yeah, really, really amazing to me because there's so much, there's just so much overlap in obviously in the relationship that we have with our bodies and our relationship to sexuality because sexuality is a really really broad topic and people don't usually realize that when you say sexuality to people they think you either mean intercourse or they think you mean sexual orientation and identity sexuality is like a much 
much broader concepts than just that. So there's actually the Circles of Sexuality, which is a really good resource for understanding how sexuality is really broad. It's basically the idea that there's like five kind of like overarching categories of sexuality. So there's sensuality, there's intimacy, there's sexual identity, obviously, there's sexual health and reproduction, and then there's also sexualization. And within those five circles, there are, you know, things that fit into that. So like, for example, intimacy is stuff like caring about other people, falling in love with people, sharing secrets with them, taking risks, being vulnerable, all of those things build intimacy. So it's just like a really nice way to see that all these things are interconnected. And under sensuality is body image. Body image is a part of it, uh, is a part of that conversation. So it's amazing to me when even within the sexuality field, when I talk to people about eating disorders, they're kind of like, oh, like, yeah, I guess that would make sense that there's some relationship there. And then in the eating disorder field, same thing. But there are, there are definitely, there is information out there. So luckily, or else I wouldn't be able to write a dissertation. So (laughs) the dissertation is what I'm really looking at is this concept called skin hunger. Skin hunger is a sensual experience. It's the extent to which we crave non-sexual touch, hugging, cuddling, holding hands, massage, stuff like that. I guess kissing could be, is not necessarily sexual, but it's basically like, I have pretty high skin hunger. Like my partner is always kind of teasing me because I always want to hug. Like, I'm like, can we hug again? You know, like I just, I want to be touched a lot. And some people are kind of like, yeah, like I just like touch. Like I'm just like, touch me all the time. (laughs) So, and other people like don't need as much touch. So it's sort of like sex drive in that different people have a different level of need. So, but what I'm interested in is this idea where, how skin hunger is experienced by people who have anorexia or women who have anorexia specifically, because we have some really interesting information. Like there is some stuff we do know around this conversation, but no one's actually touched the exact touch. That's funny. No pun intended. The exact like issue of skin hunger. Like we know that women with anorexia tend to have far lower sex drives than people with other eating disorders and non-affected people that there is a, high likelihood. A lot of people with anorexia feel like sex is kind of appalling, kind of gross, kind of, they just don't have an interest in it. It's not just that they're not interested. It's that they're not interested and they're perfectly okay not being interested. They don't, it's not something that they want to do. So we know that. We also know that when it comes to touch, that there's a lot of interesting research about anorexia and touch that people with anorexia have said that they wish that they had gotten more touch in their childhoods, that they wish that they got touch in their current lives, which makes you go like, oh, well, so is there something there? And even there was this one study that was done around all sorts of different kinds of intimacy and women with anorexia. And they were very clear generally that they were not interested in having sex with their partners, but that they were still interested in other kinds of physical intimacy with their partners. So like I read this study and I'm like, why didn't we dig into that? Like, why didn't we like go further into that, that conversation? Like, what is that about? So yeah, so there, so I'm just like really curious, like, okay, so if we know that women with anorexia, generally speaking, do not want sexual intercourse or other sexual activity, like, well, what about touch? (laughs) Do they want to be touched at all? And I think that it could go either way looking at the research that like, maybe yes, maybe no, but no one's ever asked that I can find. So I'm asking. <laughs> that's, that's it in a nutshell, basically. But yeah, I'm excited about it. It's so interesting, the, the differences between the desire for sexual intercourse and the desire for touch, right? Because it is, mm-hmm. 
And I've heard, I mean, you know, a lot of research seems to show that, and you would probably know a lot more about this, but like that women with anorexia, because of low estrogen and hormonal imbalances or whatever, might be having a lower sex drive as a result of that. So there's maybe some kind of physiological component to it, but that wouldn't change people's sort of innate drive for affection, right? Right. Yeah. Like, and I think that that's the thing too, is that like, it's such a human need and we can argue that sex is also a human need, but like touch nurturance, which is like touch nurturance would be the other way that you could like look up the concept of skin hunger. But that's something that like we absolutely need, you know, like a lot of times the conversation about touch nurturance is around infants and like, yes, obviously infants need to be touched and held and taken care of in that way. But we also do as adults and like, there is interesting, especially in today's society, with the internet and like all this other kind of digital communication where like we tend to communicate with people far more often not face to face and are not necessarily engaging in various intimate acts even stuff like eye contact that are physical <laughs> so and there's a loneliness that that can come along with that like i know that i sometimes feel happens pretty rarely but it does happen if i haven't been touched in a long time like if i like a hug or something I do feel this sense of loneliness that isn't just like, oh, I want to hang out with someone or I want to talk to someone, but it's, it's like deeper than that. Like it's something else like I'm, that I'm missing and it's just human contact is an important thing to our survival. So it's interesting. Yeah, it's just, it's interesting that more people aren't talking about it just in general. Uh, I find that like, it's one of those things when I explain skin hunger to people, they're like, oh, so like there's a name for it. You know, like it's something that we all experience, but don't have the language to talk about. Yeah, it is sort of that deeper sense of loneliness or longing or something that I've definitely experienced that myself too, like working mostly online. And when I do see people like, you know, there's still, I mean, in times when I've been single and, you know, maybe really busy with work and not able to like hang out with friends where I would give people hugs. I'll like, Mm -hmm. you know, was working in like offices where I wasn't, it wasn't appropriate to like hug your clients or whatever. So I would just be seeing people and like, and then going home and not having any sort of human touch all day long. And I think those were some of the loneliest times of my life. Right. It is. It's definitely something that is necessary for us to feel, to feel connected to people. So it is an important part of life and they're definitely, so it's really just a question of like, is that important to this particular group of people? Why or why not? (laughs) So just to know, because I think it could be so interesting. Like if we found out, for example, that like, yes, like this group of people, like they really do crave other kinds of intimate physical touch. Like that could mean so much for people who were doing stuff like couples therapy or like trying to work out sexuality during or after an eating disorder. Like there are other ways to be intimate with partners besides intercourse. So yeah, it's like such. I feel like it could be really, really helpful information to have, particularly around yeah people in recovery. Seriously, yeah. I'm curious to know like what the differences are between the different types of eating disorders with regard to. I mean, I guess you're collecting the data on skin hunger now, but with regard to other types of intimacy or sexuality. Yeah, what I find is that well, a lot of the research obviously was done with DSM four criteria since that last that that's been around for a lot longer than DSM five. So I don't have a lot on binge eating disorder specifically, but I know that the research tends to say that while people with anorexia tend to be less intimate in like basically always, and obviously we don't want to like make like huge blanket statements, but like tend to be less interested in in close relationships, period, particularly close romantic relationships, women with bulimia are almost the opposite. 
And so some people also say like that could be part of like personality pathology that might lead to the likelihood of someone developing anorexia versus bulimia, but that it tends to be that people, women with bulimia, not only are more compulsively sexual than women with anorexia, but are just more compulsively sexual, period, than other women. And obviously, we don't want to make huge generalizations or anything, but it seems that women with anorexia are less likely to engage in any type of intimacy, whereas women with bulimia are more likely to engage in various types of intimate relationships. And that includes also like self-stimulation, that like women with anorexia are less likely to masturbate than women with bulimia. Women with anorexia are less likely to engage in fantasy than women with bulimia. Again, like obviously that's that's the trend in the research. It's not gonna ring true for every person, but that that tends to be what the research says. Right. That's really interesting. And I feel like it sort of mirrors, I mean, if you look at those eating disorders on a more metaphorical level, like anorexia as restriction and deprivation, Mm -hmm. right? And sort of cutting yourself off versus bulimia as like taking in and then rejecting the world. Right. Yeah. I think that there's a lot to be said around, yeah, like personality pathology and like what might lead someone to anorexia versus bulimia and how that could affect you know, like, cause I think that that could, that might have a large effect on, we talk about like attachment styles, things like that. Like I think that can affect both of those things. Right. Absolutely. It can affect sexuality and intimacy and mm. all of that. So that's really interesting. And I'm curious to know the idea of fat phobia and internalized weight bias, how that might play into this. And, you know, like you said, maybe there's just not research on binge eating disorder yet, or certainly not on the subtypes of anorexia, such as like higher weight anorexia, atypical or other specified feeding and eating disorder or whatever, looking at people who don't really fit the sort of traditional DSM-4, like very narrow classification of anorexia. So, but I'm curious just to know in your your experience or observations of the research, like how does fat phobia and weight stigma play into people's sexuality? Well, there's definitely a lot to be said around body image in general and the ways in which our relationship to our bodies have an effect on our sexuality. So like regardless of like whether someone has an eating disorder or not, just like their experience in their bodies, like women, there's a bunch of studies that would argue that negative body image affects all domains of sexual functioning and satisfaction. That like anything that has to do with sexuality is affected by negative body image, which obviously makes sense. There's one study that shows that women with negative body image are less likely to do a whole host of things. They're less likely to undress in front of their partner. They're less likely to have sex with the lights on. They're less likely to try new things. They're just less likely to do a whole lot of things sexually Which, yeah, obviously, like even, you know, you know the difference between when you're having a good body image day and a bad body image day and how that affects your sexual relationships. Like it's really, really different. Or if you have a partner who makes you feel really safe and comfortable in your body versus a partner who doesn't, like those sexual relationships are different. And I think that when it comes to like internalized weight bias, I think unfortunately when we talk about body image, we're often talking about internalized weight bias because we live in a fat phobic society where if we quote unquote feel fat, which of course we know like that's not a possibility, but if like we feel like we are fat, then we are less likely to feel good about our bodies. And that that has, that of course has a huge effect on how we engage in our sexual relationships. There was this one survey that Cosmopolitan had put out around, around orgasm. And there, one of the findings that they found was that about a third of women said that they are unable to reach orgasm because 
they're too focused on how they look. Mm. Wow. Yeah, which is like that sucks. <laughs> so it really yeah, does. Like, yeah, just like too focused, too focused. And like I've been there. Like I know that that's real. When you're like, oh, but like, do I look cute? Like who cares? <laughs> right. <laughs> It's like nobody, nobody cares. Nobody cares. But yeah, it's it's another way of cutting off, right? Cutting off from your own pleasure and your own embodied experience. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Which is, yeah, which is really, really hard. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting too, this idea of internalized weight stigma equaling body image, right? Because I think that's something that we don't really talk about enough in society. I mean, like people like you and I are talking about this, but like traditional eating disorder treatment world treats body image like it's this this thing sort of independent of you know, sociological factors, right? I mean, maybe there's a little bit of talk about like media representations and stuff like that, but not like what the experience of living in a larger body in our society is actually like, or the whatever size body you live in, the internalized weight stigma that we're all given, right? Or the, (laughs) the fat phobia that everybody is sort of like is downloaded into pretty much everyone's brain in a Western society and how that affects our relationships with our bodies. Yeah, which, yeah, exactly. It's definitely not something we talk enough about. I think it's interesting when we talk about body image as a concept, I think that people are really confused about what body image is. Like, I think, because even when you talk to people about, like, positive body image, I feel like a lot of folks think that that means that you have to feel good about your body all the time rather than just, rather than it being more like most of the time you just have a a clear understanding of what your body looks like and feels like in space. (laughs) Like, and that that's going to include some days you're not going to feel good. You know, some days you're not going to be pumped to live in your body and, like, that's all right. That that is part of having just like a normal body image. Um, and then there are going to be some days where you're like, wow, like I'm like the hottest thing on earth. Like it's like those, <laughs> it, you know, there's definitely an up and down. But yeah, I think I think it's so interesting that people really don't like sometimes the idea that there are like sociocultural factors in how we understand the world. It's like it's it's amazing to me that like so many people are resistant to that idea when it's like so it's so obvious that of course that society has effect on how we understand things. That doesn't mean that it's the only factor. And, you know, obviously this is true all the time when we talk about eating disorders that like people are really oftentimes resistant to the idea that society can influence eating disorders. Like, and that's like saying that like, that's the only thing that contributes to the potential to develop an eating disorder. But of course that matters. Of course that there are certain societies that have more higher eating disorder prevalence than others like that. You have to take that into consideration. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's, it's inevitable in a fat phobic society for people to develop, you know, it's, it creates the conditions, even if it doesn't actually cause an eating disorder, it's sort of it's like fertile ground for an eating disorder to develop. Yeah. When we live in a world, I was just talking to a friend of mine recently, Caleb Luna, whose work is like super amazing and everyone should look it up. But he and I were talking about this around fat phobia and eating disorders and whether or not that's a contributing factor. And it's like, yes, of course that's a contributing factor. Is it going to be, is it the number one, is it what's on people's minds actively necessarily as they're developing eating disorder? No, like, you know, probably not most of the time, not, but when we live in a world that is fat phobic, that means we also live in a world that pushes diet culture, which means that we live in a world where people are more likely to engage in restrictive or purging behaviors, which obviously also then lead to binging behaviors that can become out of control. 
Where like, you could honestly argue that restriction, binging and purging, regardless of the level at which it's going is out of control. I always think it's so interesting when you talk about, for instance, like a bulimia diagnosis, and it's like, oh, you have to purge this many times. Like, no, if you purged once, that's a problem. Like, that's totally happening, you know, like, that's a problem. It's such a weird thing. I completely agree. I when I was in my eating disorder, actually, I purged twice, all of twice. But mm-hmm. you know, it totally freaked me out because my eating disorder was up until that point the restrict binge over exercise cycle, and mm-hmm. I hadn't. You know, it was like purging felt like crossing the Rubicon. It was like this is a real eating disorder, quote unquote, because I didn't see what I was doing as really an eating disorder. But everybody sort of knows the symptom of bulimia is purging, and like that's I sort of knew that that. That was not something I wanted to engage in. And so when I did, I was like, help, you know, please help me. Like I reached out to my mom. I reached out to a therapist and people were just like, well, it's not a bulimia diagnosis. One, my mom literally what? said to me, like, one swallow does not make spring, which is a very ironic phrasing. <laughs> yeah, right, absolutely. <laughs> and I like, but the, you know, and I I get the where people were coming from and trying not to like pathologize me and give me, you know, like I think there was an effort not to stigmatize me and drive me further into an eating disordered mindset or something like that. But it was mm-hmm. not, it was not actually helpful because what the impulse was on my end that I can now see is just like, I know that this is a problem. Like, even if it only happened twice, this is a huge problem that I got to the point where I felt like I needed to do this. It was a cry for help. Yeah. It's interesting. It's definitely, yeah, it's definitely an interesting conversation. And it's, I think especially too, yeah, with purging is like, huh, the idea that like restriction is so expected in our society that if you restrict and even if you restrict to the point of an eating disorder to like disordered eating, like that's not really like doesn't seem abnormal. But like purging is like it feels like it's like very active choice. Of course, it's not. But like it, it's it's like read as is very active. Like, oh, that's that's weird. That's messy. That's a bigger deal. And yet, yeah, when you look at like kind of like diagnostic criteria, it's like, oh, well, if you only did it a couple of times, it's fine. Like, is it <laughs> like, is really? it really? Yeah, I feel like it's probably not fine. Right. Nobody should be purging. Like purging yeah, is not something yeah. we're meant to be doing. And nobody should be restricting or over-exercising right, either. You exactly. know, like, yeah, none of this should be happening. Right. And that's the driver for the binging and maybe the compensation factors that people use. So it's like, yeah, I think it, it gets all very twisted in diet culture when it's just so normalized and so expected that people are going to have some restrictive behaviors. And even like there was that study by, Sin- I think Cynthia Bulick was maybe the lead author and there's it was out of UNC Chapel Hill or something that was looking at disordered eating, the prevalence of disordered eating, not eating disorders you know, per okay. se, but but just any disordered behavior, which included purging, which included other sort of compensatory behaviors, which included restriction and diet cycling and stuff like that. And it was like 75% of the women they studied, you know, which right. seems low to me, frankly, given like how yeah, many people mm-hmm. I talked to you about this stuff. But yeah, it's incredibly prevalent. Yeah. And that that's to say nothing of men and trans folks as well who experience growing rates of eating disorders and or just it's not talked about as much, right, or studied. Yeah, absolutely. We live in a really scared world. And so like that's the thing is like, how can you say that that has no effect or very little effect or whatever on the ways that we relate to our bodies and therefore relate to food and, and eating? Like it's, right. it's, it seems pretty obvious that obviously things are related. 
Completely. I'm curious to know in your research and and the sexuality literature on specifically like restrictive eating and dieting and sexuality, is there is there any evidence that restriction, even if it's not clinical grade anorexia or whatever, affects people's sexuality? That's a good question. Well, I think it's I think it's hard because there's definitely a lot of confounding factors. Because I would say that like we were talking about, like that negative body image absolutely affects sexuality. You could probably argue that people who are dieting have negative body image and so therefore are engaging in some restriction and, you know, that, that all that is related. I don't know off the top of my head. I'm sure there's research that exists that talks specifically about people on diets and their relationships. But yeah, I can't think of anything specifically, but I would guess <laughs> because I think that because there is that mediating factor around, around body image that definitely plays a role. Right, because nobody would be dieting or restricting if they didn't. I mean, you know, restricting, maybe there's there's arguments. You know, there's some people who kind of stumble into it for various reasons, mm-hmm. especially when they're really young and restricting makes them feel better or numb out or, you know, deal right. with difficult emotions, right? So there is that piece. But I feel like even when the people that I've worked with who had that experience, which is a minority, they at some point too got caught up in diet culture. And so even if it was like they stumbled into restricting because of a psychological reason, it just felt good. At a certain point, people were like, ooh, what are you doing? You look awesome, you know? And then there was this seed planted of the desire to retain that body or to keep doing the behaviors to get that praise. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it's really fertile ground, I think, for disordered eating and eating disorders to develop in this society. And there is that research, too, that people who, I think it was on the island of Fiji, maybe, or I forget. It was it was like a South Pacific island where they looked at people before the advent of television there. And then after television, the, the incidence of eating disorders skyrocketed. Yeah, and specifically it was American television, which I think also matters. And it wasn't like, it was like Baywatch. <laughs> like it was like very, very specifically like American media. And I think that that is so important because media in the United States is exported. It's like one of our number one exports, if you want to think of it that way. Corn and television. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a huge export, which means that so many other places now are being exposed to American media and an American beauty standard, which is really problematic. And there's, yeah, there's so much research around, like, even if you look at Bollywood, for example, like that the ways in which Bollywood movies and the way that women in Bollywood and even men have changed in terms of like what signals attractiveness has changed really, really drastically over time as American media becomes more and more popular, like in India, for example. So, I mean, it's it's serious. So I think there's a lot to, to say about the ways in which we present what it means to be attractive. And when it's very, very narrow, that's always going to be, no matter what the standard is, if it's a very narrow standard, it's going to be impossible to obtain and attain because there's no way for all people to look the same. That's just like not what we're built to do. So totally. I'm really interested to talk with you more about beauty, actually, because you've written really beautifully about beauty. (laughs) No pun intended, (laughs) you know, on your your site and your newsletter. And this idea that I was just looking at your Twitter earlier and, and this post about beauty being obligatory versus beauty being something that you choose and decide to do. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's really interesting to think about the idea of beauty as separated from 
an ideal, right? And as right. what does it look like? What does it mean to do beauty in a way that's not obligatory or sort of within the confines of patriarchal diet culture? Yeah. And I think what's hard is there's so many different ways to look at beauty. One of my favorite books on the topic is Survival of the Prettiest by Nancy Etcoff. And what I really like about that book is that it takes a pretty no, it doesn't take a purely biological standpoint, but it but it's it is very biological in its kind of unpacking of beauty. It's, it was basically written like in response to the beauty myth by Naomi Wolf and saying like, okay, but this doesn't take into consideration this, this, and this. And I really, really like it. And so there there is an argument to be made that the pursuit of beauty is going to is, is something we're all driven to do, that we are all driven to be attractive because our most core need as a species is to continue the species. <laughs> so we need to be, uh, we need to be attractive to people to be chosen in order to, to do that. So of course there's definitely other factors involved. And I would never argue that like an evolutionary psychological, any conversation in that realm is like complete. Obviously we need to talk about a, a lot of different things. And so I think the thing about beauty is I don't think that the pursuit of beauty is, is in and of itself a bad thing. I think it's actually probably a natural thing. It makes sense. The problem is that we have really, really narrow standards for what beauty looks like. And so then people are continually chasing the same standard of beauty rather than beauty being able to be something wider. Because they think there are definitely, when you look at the research around attraction and mate selection, there are some things that stand the test of time that like across cultures in across history have states that are very, very broad, like clear skin, for example, it's like one or like hair is another one. Youthfulness is like another one. Like these are all like, I mean, those are really broad concepts. Like what does it mean to have any of those things really? But the thing too, is that there are so many other things are pretty, are, are very, very specific. And even over the course of like 20 years, you can tell that the beauty standard has changed in various ways. Like I even think about when I was in middle school and high school that like large breasts were like very, very in. <laughs> and like now they're, they're not necessarily now it's like wide hips are like very, very in. And you can use psychology, evolution and all of that to argue for any of those things. Like, oh, well, if you have large breasts and that means that that would signal to someone that you have an abundance of food to give to a baby or whatever. Like if you have large hips, that means that you could like bear a child. Like there's all these ways that you could, that you can argue about it. But the truth is that beauty standards shift and that matters. And I, but I don't, I think the thing about beauty that's so hard. And when we talk about like patriarchal standards of beauty is that I think about it a lot, like in terms of like makeup, because like I wear makeup every single day and I'm, you know, I'm wearing it right now. You can't even see my face. Like, what is that? What's the <laughs> point? But I'm, a, I'm home alone. So like, what difference is it with my cats, you know? So, but I think the thing is like, there's no way for me to know if I would still engage in beauty in that way, if I didn't grow up in a society that told me I had to, there's no way for me to know because, because obviously I can't, I can't erase that. So I think when people talk about it, they talk about it as if there's no possibility to make a choice. And I don't want to argue that like making a choice is inherently feminist or like anything like that, because obviously you can make a choice that is not helpful to like women in general, or like you can make a choice that is like patriarchy influence you to make that choice. But it's like makeup in and of itself, I feel like is neutral in terms of value. Like you can use it or you cannot use it. It doesn't matter what your gender is. Like you can, you can use it if you want to. The question is, what it comes down to, to me, is exactly what you were just saying, is like the obligation 
It's that we are socialized that it's obligatory, that we have to do it. And that's the problem. So I feel like like the mascara in and of itself isn't a problem. The problem is that we were told our whole lives that we need to use it. So then the question becomes for people who do use it is like, well, how do you know you would have made that choice regardless? And you don't. And I think that it's not a good use of time to necessarily <laughs> to like sit and like think about that. Not, not to think about it, but not to like feel turmoil over it. Like, yeah, we need to think about that. We need to unpack the choices that we make, but like we need to engage with ourselves in the ways that we want to engage with ourselves at the end of the day. Right. It's not something to feel guilty about if you you do make that choice. Exactly. Like if you're going to make that choice, make it like you can make a choice and know the ways in which it conforms to patriarchal beauty standards and knowing it and deciding to engage with it anyway, I don't think is necessarily, I think that the argument around like whether or not that's feminist is difficult because I think every single person makes choices that conform to patriarchy. We all do because we live in a patriarchal world. (laughs) So we're all doing that all the time. Like that would, that's uh, to me is just an argument that's going to go nowhere. So it's not, it's like not really worth debating. Right. Totally. And I also think of it as like, I mean, I wear, I wear makeup too and have a hard time leaving the house without it. And I wish (laughs) that I didn't, right. I wish I had that time back, but Mm -hmm. I also feel like it's sort of my armor, you know, like if I don't wear it, I'm going to get, especially, you know, depending on the space I'm in, right. Like if I don't wear makeup to a yoga class, I'm not going to get as many negative feedback moments as I would if I didn't wear makeup to like a speaking engagement. Right. And so, and if I didn't wear makeup to a speaking engagement, it might be like, Oh God, she looks tired or like, wow, she's really young. You know, those are the two things that I've been criticized about consistently for if I haven't worn makeup. It's like, I look young anyway. And if I don't wear makeup, I look really young. And if I don't wear makeup, I also have very dark circles under my eyes and look tired. And so people are like, are you okay? You know? And so hearing that stuff, you know, it's like, I have had to grapple with what about that? Can I just be like, well, that's other people's interpretation of what my body just is like how my face is, you know, but also is it worth it to me to fight that battle constantly or does it help my cause? Does it help advance body acceptance as a whole that the work I'm trying to do if I just put on the armor and wear the makeup? Right. Yeah. And I think, and I think it's just important that we are able to make those choices and still question our own choices. Like, I think that that is the important thing. It's the same thing with like media and people will be like, oh, well, can I listen to problematic media? Like music, for example, like, well, if you know that it's problematic and you're like unpacking that and you're willing to have those conversations with people when they come up, it doesn't mean you can't listen to it. (laughs) Like, you know, like you can be critical of things that you love. And I think that that's really at the end of the day, what it's about, not necessarily boycotting things. Although like some people do that and that's awesome. And like, I also think it's a totally great feminist choice not to wear makeup. Like I think that you could go either way. I just don't think it, I just, I I struggle with like when we talk about beauty and we, I, sometimes I think we take the nuance out of it. That is a very nuanced conversation to be having around like how does patriarchy influence us? How do we exercise autonomy within patriarchy? And can we exercise autonomy within patriarchy at all? Like, is that even possible to make any choice? Like, yeah, I feel like that can get that can get real philosophical real fast <laughs> and, <laughs> and complicated. Yeah. And and ultimately, you know, I mean, depending on where people are at in their journey towards body acceptance and embracing feminism and living a life that is in opposition to patriarchy or whatever, it can be 
almost demoralizing. Like it can sort of drag you down if you get too bogged down in those kinds of conversations and thoughts. Like recently on the podcast, I had Jess Baker on to talk about her concept of body liberation and like this gray area of what do you do if someone you really admire in the body acceptance movement or fat acceptance movement gets weight loss surgery? What do you do if when your heroes fall, basically. And it's like, there's so much nuance in that because like her argument was, you know, we need to stop publicly dragging the person who made that choice and instead put the focus on diet culture, which created the conditions that made that person have to make or feel like they had to make that choice because their life was being so negatively affected by people's judgments and oppression for their size, et cetera. But that's like a nuanced conversation, right? And thinking about that as like, we can't just sort of blanket reject and in fact might still admire or be friends with or whatever, you know, people who've made a choice to do something that goes really against body acceptance or what we sort of consider to be like a fat acceptance choice, right? If they're making a choice that seems antithetical to that, can they still be a part of the movement? Can we still admire them or consume their media or whatever. And it's like, it is what you said, you know, it's that nuance of kind of thinking critically about it and engaging with how you feel, but also sort of recognizing that there's no black and white in this, in this regard. It's a, it's a conversation. It's an ongoing discussion. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And that, that at the end of the day, like the issue again, like something like, like makeup is like, it's weaponized by patriarchy. Like it's in and of itself isn't a problem, but rather when it's made to be the way that we think about it, that's when it becomes dangerous <laughs> or when it becomes something that like, yeah, that could be, that can be oppressive. So. Right. Totally. And there are some interesting uses of makeup too, like drag or costumes. Yeah, right, or absolutely. There's lots of cool ways to sort of play with it. Yeah. And I think too, like just also the idea that like you don't, you can be a person of any gender and, and wear makeup. And I think that that's the thing too, is like the only reason why we look at makeup as something that is frivolous and something that is vain is because we associate it with femininity, which we associate with women. You know, like that's about femphobia. That's about misogyny. Like that's, that's really what that comes down to. So yeah, a lot of things to say about that. Actually, my, the newsletter that I'm working on to go out for July is like on this exact topic, like because I as a femme identified person and like kind of exhausted of the ways in which we talk about femininity and hegemonic femininity as inherently wrong. It's like, it's a, it's an interesting thing. Yeah. That is really interesting. Cause it, it's true that if you were to sort of take that argument to its logical conclusion, then anyone who buys in in any way, or maybe even just is inherently feminine or whatever would be, it's demonizing people who participate in femininity in any way. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's really interesting. I'm curious to talk a little bit more about media stuff, too, because you do so much great work around media literacy and understanding the effects of media. And that sort of ties in with the beauty standard, too, right? The the beauty standard is disseminated through media. And then specifically in regard to the Netflix movie To the Bone, which just came out this week and you've been speaking about all over the place. (laughs) Might make you do it again. (laughs) I'm down for it. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, I love the essay you wrote about it. And I'm curious just to hear your take on why you think it's such a problematic treatment of, of an eating disorder. I think the problem really more generally is eating disorder movies, period. I thought to the bone, I've seen it twice at this point. Well, I got a screener of it. I know it just came out today. <laughs> like, I didn't watch it twice today. Uh, I got an early an early version of it. But I, uh, 
the movie itself is 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 a fine movie. Like obviously I watched it twice and like and was fine doing that in terms of like an entertaining movie. It was fine. And even in terms of how it represents eating disorders is more or less fine, like is is pretty accurate. I think the problem is the idea of a singular narrative. It's that eating disorder movies only ever focus on one experience. This is true of most eating disorder media, period. Not just movies, but also obviously TV, but like also like memoir and fiction. Like very, very much focus on a young, thin, white woman who's probably cisgender and straight and able besides the mental illness and all these other things. Like I basically have like the most privilege aside from being a woman and I have anorexia and I anorexia diagnosis and can afford inpatient treatment and like go into either like a residential or inpatient program. It's, a, it's just the same story over and over and over again. And it's also often like a worst case scenario. It's like people, it's, it's women with anorexia who are dying. And it's like, that's just not the reality of most people's experiences with their eating disorder. Most people who have eating disorders are not dying. And that's not to say that like, I mean, that is an unfortunate and serious reality of eating disorders and anorexia specifically that there, there are high mortality rates. That is real. And is a conversation absolutely worth having, but why is it the only conversation worth having? Why is it the only conversation we ever get? And so I think the problem with To the Bone is that it just, it just fits into that exact same stereotype or prototype of like the only, the only kind of story that we get. And I would just love to see an eating disorder movie that addresses something different, that, it, that looks at like a marginalized group that look or like a marginalized person that looks at the recovery process. Like why does it, why is it always like the depth of the illness is what we're looking at? Like what about the complications of like being in recovery from an eating disorder? Like what might that look like in media or like even a movie that like avoids some triggering material? I think it's kind of impossible to make a movie or any kind of media about an eating disorder without triggering material because like, that's kind of like the whole thing or the thoughts and behaviors that you're engaging in. So I think it would, be kind of impossible to do. But do we have to have like calorie counts? Do we have to talk about weight? Like, do we need to have those things in a film? Like, I just I don't think that they add anything. And particularly, I think the issue is to the bone for me was that it was written and directed by someone who is in eating disorder recovery, it starred someone who's in eating disorder recovery, they worked with Project Heal to, to try to make sure that it was the most accurate representation possible. And all of these things that make it feel like it's oh no, like we're like you, like we're going to do right by you kind of thing. But it's like, but you're not doing right by the recovery community when you are putting like really triggering material in the film. Like you just, I feel like you just can't make that argument at all. Totally. That's such a great point. And it's like, it's really interesting that they, I don't know the politics of this or why this decision happened, but it's interesting that they worked with Project Heal, which is a relatively small foundation that gives grants for treatment and it's great versus mm -hmm. the National Eating Disorders Association, which is right. you know a huge organization that actually deals with this stuff and has guidelines that they publish on how to share your story responsibly, responsible media coverage of eating disorders, right? Because I mean, the movie clearly ran afoul of that so hard that like maybe, exactly. you know, there was no, there was no saving it. I don't know. But I mean, I do think that there is a way and, you know, with a podcast, it might be easier because I'm not having to depict something, you know, like I'm sure. not having to represent visually. I'm just talking to people about ideas. But it's so easy just to bleep out numbers if anyone says them or like I prep my guests who are telling their what? stories just to be like, hey, don't say numbers, you know, and then if it happens, great, I'll bleep it out. But like there's so many easy sort of little things you can do to just make the conversation safe that it doesn't take away 
the detail doesn't take away the emotional experience. People still tell me all the time that episodes make them cry and that like, hearing people's stories like deeply resonated with them. And that can happen in an environment of relative safety. Like not that this podcast is ever completely free of triggers because of course each individual has their own little things that might trigger them. But like on the whole, it's it's avoiding anything that's sort of universally triggering. And yeah. it's like, why couldn't they just just take that one little step. Yeah, I really like that point around like when the National Eating Disorders Association has an entire resource on their website around and it's like and I looked at it and it's like it because I was writing about this for mike.com and I so I was like I looked at it and it, it's seven recommendations and I, the movie broke at least four. I just don't think that's responsible. No, totally. And I think it's like if there are guidelines out there about responsible coverage of something and many triggering types of subject matter have this, especially with like other mental health issues. There's pretty generally accepted guidelines of like, although Netflix, again, really violated that with. Yeah, with 13 Reasons Why. Sure. Right. They're, yeah, their show about suicide. It's like, you know, these concepts are extremely triggering for people. And I think you said in, in the essay, or maybe you were quoting Kelsey Osgood's amazing book, How to Disappear Completely that, you know, anorexia is contagious, right? Or eating disorders right. are contagious, that people are taught these concepts and ideas and then implement them. And, you know, not that the eating disorder only develops through transmission by other people, but like it is at least worsened and deepened by hearing other people's how-to stories, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because that's what happens is that eating disorder media can devolve into basically a manual for how to better perform and hide your eating disorder. That is not helpful. That is not helpful to people. And I felt like I kept a running list of triggering moments in to the bone and I got to 15 and then I kind of like stopped, stopped keeping a running list. But like there were many, there were those moments of like, this could be taken as a tip. And I just how can you say that this is responsible? I just, it's not. <laughs> like, I don't think what is the value in something like a character saying what the easiest thing to purge is? I don't see the value in that. No, it's really not. What is the artistic value of that? Okay, it's sort of salacious maybe. And it get, it's mm -hmm. like gets people who don't understand the mind of an eating disorder to be like, whoa, people think like that. But it does so much more harm than good because if weighing that sort of detail against what it's going to do to people who are vulnerable and in the place where they're like, ooh, I should try that, why is it worth including? Why not just, you know, there's plenty of other ways to tell a story, again, in an emotionally resonant way. And I'm sure visually too, like, I mean, like you said, there would be something so powerful about doing a movie or, you know, TV show or whatever about an eating disorder that featured, I don't know, like a larger bodied person of color or a trans person or, you know, just any identity that is not a thin white woman with diagnosed anorexia in a treatment center, like people's showing the ways that eating disorders are misdiagnosed or hide or fly under the radar. Because that's the majority of sufferers, right? That's the majority of people who who have it. <laughs> it's like this argument around like, well, educating the public about what an eating disorder looks like. But when you have someone like Lily Collins, who's already thin and then was required to lose weight for the role, who like, you don't need to know anything about any of her food behaviors or exercise behaviors. Like, if you just looked at her, you would probably assume something was, was wrong. So you have that. And then you have, you're showing her like running up and down stairs in the middle of the night or like uh, there's all of these, these things that like, I feel like this is so, it's so obvious. 
like, and you know, just like straight up refusing to eat. Like, this is a very obvious case. This is not something, this is not a good example of someone whose eating disorder is like, oh, like I have to like notice these like nuances in this person's behavior to be able to like recognize an eating disorder. And eating disorders are really, really easy to hide. Like that's sort of the problem in living in a diet culture that especially restrictive eating disorder is really easy to hide under behind a diet. So I just feel like, yeah, like it would be so cool to get a movie that like talks about that. But instead, we just get like yeah. this worst case scenario, literally a person who was dying. Well, they're at the, if they're at the point that they're dying, then like obviously that this is an extreme case that like we already know <laughs> that there's a problem. Right. And that the, there was so much more that could have been done sooner, earlier in that person's trajectory to not let it get to that point. And I think that's the problem, too, with movies like this is it just reinforces the stereotype again and again. And even among medical professionals, this exists. And my experience with trying to tell doctors or therapists what was wrong and, and having them say, oh, but you can't have an eating disorder. You're not thin enough, basically. Right. Mm-hmm. This kind of movie just perpetuates that. This is, you know, what the diagnostic picture of, of an eating disorder looks like. And if someone falls outside of that, even if they're obviously in distress, it can't possibly be anything wrong. Right. Absolutely. Because, yeah, this is what an eating disorder looks like. And an eating disorder doesn't look like anything. Right. Right. It looks like a person who is in pain. <laughs> so, but that's, but that's it. And yeah, so it's definitely, yeah, it just adds to, to a stereotype. And I don't really think that that really helps anyone who is suffering or, or in recovery. Absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons I do a podcast really is to just kind of get a diversity of voices and ideas instead of showing what people look like. I mean, people can obviously see people's headshots on my website and stuff, but like, (laughs) I think there's something really valuable about hearing diverse voices and different experiences and hearing the commonalities in what people went through and how they struggled and what the emotional experience was like and not looking at them and judging them, you know, based Mm -hmm. on their body size or shape, right? Or color or gender or anything like that. Right. So yeah, I think it would be, I mean, hopefully someone listening out there is an awesome filmmaker and can do something like this, (laughs) you know? Yeah, that would be the dream. Or, you know, a memoirist. I mean, I think we do need more memoirs. You know, eating disorder memoirs are so problematic, but I have thought that there has to be a way to write an eating disorder memoir that still avoids those obvious triggers, right? And that's like relatively responsible. Right. I think it's possible. Yeah. I think so too. I think I don't know how well it would sell because I think that's I think that's part of the problem is that they want that like grit, you know, of of a memoir of like a story about mental health. Like and that I think that's part of the problem is like that that's the way that the public perception of these things is. And so in order to give them what they want, to in order for something to be marketable, it has to be that way. So I wonder like how we change that culture. Totally. I know. I I actually brief, briefly shopped a memoir proposal around of my own history. And then I was kind of like, this was like a year and a half ago or something. And I was like, you know, I actually don't know if I want to write a memoir because while my story is a little different than the typical white woman with severe anorexia in a treatment center. It's not different enough in the sense that I'm still a white privileged woman who was always in a thin body and just happened to be not as close to death as the people who are often depicted, right? So I kind of want there to be the sort of explosion of the concept. Like I want someone to come out who really does challenge people's stereotypes of what an eating disorder sufferer should look like, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. and tell their story. And hopefully, I mean, I think that cool book agents and publishing houses and cool 
media outlets in general are sort of getting the idea that intersectionality is something we need to be talking about and featuring and that featuring diverse voices is important. So maybe there's hope for that. I just, I would totally, I would eat that up and, you know, have the person on my podcast in a second. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because, and and people are telling those stories, right? It's just like, where's the demand for those stories is like really, is like really what I think it comes down to because it's definitely, obviously people who are trans, people who are disabled, people who are of color are telling their stories with, with their eating disorders and with their body image and all of those things. But like, why isn't there a massive public demand for those stories so that people are being given money an opportunity to tell those stories is the key. So I think we need to like demand them and we need to buy the media that does do that, right? Like I wrote about this for the establishment that we're all talking about to the bone, but I don't see a lot of people talking about Roxanne Gay's recent memoir, Hunger. People in the feminist world are, but I don't see people in the body image world talking about it as much. And it's like, if we want to keep saying that we want diverse media, we need to actually purchase diverse media. Absolutely. That sends a message to folks. That's such a good point. Yeah. And I do think Roxane Gay's hunger really does explode some of these ideas. Yeah, it does challenge a lot of it. Yeah, for sure. It does. I mean, it's it's tricky, too, because she's not writing from a perspective of someone who's like, and I'm recovered and I'm happy with my body now. And so it's it's hard for people who are in it to sort of not be triggered by it. But but still, it's a it's a resource that needs to exist. It's a voice that needs to be heard. Right. Yeah. Well, tell us a little more about your study and what you're doing to recruit participants and how people can get involved. Yeah, that's a great question. So I currently have a, a survey, I guess you can call it, up. You can find it at tinyurl.com slash A-N skin. And there it asks questions basically to see if a person would qualify for the study and then ask for demographic information which gets sent to me. And then I will choose the participants because I'm trying to have the most diverse sample size possible. So I'm going to choose participants based on a number of factors to set up interviews with in the fall, hopefully the fall. So yeah, so like the, yeah, the first, if you want more information, you want to potentially participate, you can go to that website and you can get the information that you need and also fill out the, the form so that I know that you're interested. That's awesome. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes, too, so people can fill it out. I think it will be an amazing experience for people to participate and contribute to this research because I so want to read this research. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Hopefully when it's done, someone will want to read it because I will have spent a lot of time on it. (laughs) That's the goal. I hope that becomes a book. Speaking of things we wish were books. (laughs) Yeah, maybe someday. And tell us where people can find all your other work and learn more about you in general. Yeah, everything that you could possibly probably want can be found on my website, which is melissafabello.com. There's links to videos that I've made, articles that I've written, the opportunity to book me for speaking engagements, as well as to sign up for my newsletter, um, which is only monthly. So it's not a big commitment. Yeah, but it's all there. Love it. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes, too. Oh, so great talking with you, Melissa. It's really a pleasure. Yeah, you too. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me again. (laughs) (laughs) So that's our show. 
Thanks again so much to Melissa Fabello for being our guest this week, and thanks to you all for listening. You can get full show notes for this episode, including all of the resources we discussed, at christyharrison.com slash 115 for episode 115. And if you like the podcast and you want to help us reach more people who need to hear these messages, head over to iTunes and click subscribe if you haven't already, or leave us a nice rating and review. To do that, go to the podcast app on your phone, the little purple app, type in Food Psych to the search bar, even if you're already subscribed, you have to do the review by typing in the name to the search field. So type in Food Psych to the search bar, click on the result that comes up, and then click on ratings and reviews to submit your rating and review there. These ratings and reviews are so valuable. They really make my day every time I hear them. And they also help get the word out about the podcast so that more people can hear these health at every size and body acceptance messages. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put